Such great truths to sing. Thank you for singing out with your whole heart to the Lord as he's worthy of our praise. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7 as we continue our way through this wonderful letter. Isn't it interesting in this life how we are constantly tempted to value temporal things more than they deserve, only to find out yet again that they cannot live up to our unrealistic expectations? We do this with gadgets and toys we like to buy. We, we do it waiting for the latest iPhone or new clothes or a new vehicle, a new house. We save and save and wait and wait. And the longer we wait, the more our expectations grow and the more we become convinced of how great our lives are going to be when we get that new thing. And then when we finally cross the finish line and we, we buy that thing and it's ours, we find that it loses its shine very quickly. We can do the same thing with much more significant things like human relationships. We, we long to have deep, close friendships. We long to have perhaps the gift of marriage. We long to have the gift of children. And the truth is these are all great gifts, but once we get them, we're quickly reminded that we're all sinners. And so there's going to need to be sanctification in our lives for us to truly enjoy even these good relationships in the ways that God intended but there's one of whom our thoughts, our hopes, and our expectations can never be high enough. There's one who, when we finally meet him face to face, the reality of who he is will infinitely surpass our greatest imaginations and expectations. And this sensation will never fade. It won't fade with time. It won't fade with familiarity. But we will find that the more we look at the glory of Jesus Christ, the more glory there is to see. And the more that we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the more there is to know. His glory is infinite. And therefore, we will continue to be amazed and left awestruck for eternity. The most righteous among us will tremble in his presence and freely confess that we are unworthy. The most studied in our number will feel small and ignorant of God at the first glimpse of his glory. And it is with this fact in mind, this understanding of the greatness of God and the grandeur of Christ that Solomon would be led to write in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And later in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion when all is heard is fear God and keep his commandments. The author of Hebrews is following in line with that to, to help us to have big thoughts of God, to have a, a high view of God, to fear the Lord by looking at the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish Christians receiving this letter have allowed their gaze to slowly but surely drift away from Christ onto their circumstances, and therefore their faith is beginning to weaken. They've, they've forgotten just how glorious Jesus really is, and some of them perhaps are even looking back at their former life of Judaism and considering if, if maybe they should abandon this new way and go back to the old the author of Hebrews is dead set on strengthening their faith that they might persevere faithful to the end. And he knows that the best way to strengthen a person's faith is to bring their mind back to the glories of God. And so it is that we have the privilege of turning our minds back to this theme of the glory of Christ here in the letter to the Hebrews. Remember, we're talking specifically about the priesthood of Christ, the superiority of that priesthood, but the whole book is about the superiority of Christ. We're here in this fourth section of this longer section that began in chapter 4. We're in chapter 7. Last week we began chapter 7 reading verses 1 to 3. Let's just read those verses again to lay the groundwork for where we'll be this morning. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. As we looked at those seven verses, we found two observations about this man Melchizedek that ultimately will lead us to observations about Christ. We saw the historical significance of Melchizedek and his roles and his connection to Abraham. And we saw the spiritual significance of Melchizedek, that he's a type of Christ. He's a, a, a shadow of what would come, that there are certain aspects of his life that pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, here he mentions his kingly character pointed forward to Christ and his priestly uh, perpetuity, that is, that his priesthood would go on forever. Now, as I mentioned last week, don't forget that the, the application of these truths has already been introduced to us. He'll come back to some of those applications later, but right now we're in this section of argumentation. He's proving to us why Christ is so superior through this order of Melchizedek. And so we'll be looking again at that argument and fleshing that out even further today in verses 4 to 10. Chapter 7, verses 4 to 10. Let's read that together. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their brethren, also these are, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, we're still in this, this longer section that's under the banner of one ultimate theme, and that theme is this, that the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. Keep that in mind. The eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. That's the idea here. As you look at the glories of the priesthood of Christ, your grip on your assurance of faith should grow tighter and tighter and tighter. But again, he turns to this, this argument from the life of Melchizedek in order that we may gain a higher appreciation of Christ. Don't forget, every point that he makes about Melchizedek ultimately is a point about Christ. He's wanting our focus to remain there on the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we're going to talk about this historical man, Melchizedek, everything we learn is to point us to our Savior. Now in these verses, in verses 4 to 10, we begin with a, a command that's followed by four observations. A command and four observations. And what we're going to do is just walk through this passage and explain it in its context and then back up and look at the, the significance of what the author is saying. So let's start with the command in verse 4. The command is observe the greatness of Melchizedek. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Observe how great this man was. Now, the first three verses that we studied last week really introduced Melchizedek. Who was he? What was his historical significance? But now the author's going to take the details that he mentioned about Melchizedek and begin to flesh those out to show how they point to his argument about the superiority of Christ. The command here is the word observe. Observe, pay attention. He says, now having given you this historical overview of Melchizedek, I want you to think, I want you to meditate, observe how great this man really is. Because in so doing, we will also see the greatness of Christ. So to introduce these four observations that are coming, he mentions one key detail from verses 1 to 3. He's going to remind us of one detail that he gave us that's going to be the focus of his argument. He says, now observe how great this man was, 
to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Obviously, the the thing he's highlighting here is the tithe that Abraham paid. But before we get to that, notice the title that's given to Abraham. He doesn't just say Abraham. What does he call him? Abraham the patriarch. Now, that's important because what he's doing is two things. He's going to exalt Abraham to help us see truly how great Abraham was to then show us that Melchizedek was even greater to then show us that Christ is ultimate in his greatness. And the detail he gives us here is that Abraham is the the patriarch. What What does it mean that he refers to Abraham in this way? Remember, of course, Abraham's the father of the entire Jewish nation. He's the father of, of ultimately Levi, the great the grandfather, and, and that ultimately would become the Levitical priesthood through Levi's line. The point is, all of this originates with Abraham. He's the head of the family. He's the head of the entire people group. It starts with Abraham. And so this title is an intentional reminder of just how great this man is that we're saying was lesser than Melchizedek. A couple of people approached me last week just asking more details about how do we know that Melchizedek was a Gentile, something I said last week. And and it's because we we see this here, that Abraham is the patriarch, and he's he's the head, he's the first of the family of the nation of Israel. Melchizedek was a contemporary of Abraham, not born from his line, and so really he has no option but to be a Gentile. There's just Abraham from whom the Jews would come, And there's this man now, Melchizedek, obviously coming from a different bloodline. But the mention of Abraham as a patriarch is an acknowledgement of his greatness. And remember how exalted Abraham was in the minds of the Jews during the ministry of Christ. They brought up Abraham often in comparing Jesus to Abraham. And in fact, the comparison of Jesus to Abraham becomes the foundation of one of Jesus' clearest declarations of his own divinity in John 8. Let's look at that together. John 8, 53 to 59. This is the Jews speaking. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Listen to this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This was common. This was, and in some ways it was it was right to think of Abraham in a respectful way. He was the patriarch of the nation, but Jesus here proves, I am the eternal one. I'm the great I am. I was before Abraham, and he rejoiced to see my coming. But here we have this patriarch of Israel that the Jews rightly held in high esteem. And the author's going to use that then to show us if just how great Melchizedek must have been if he was greater even than this one, Abraham the patriarch. And we see this in this one action of Abraham, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. When Abraham comes back from this battle... Even though he was the patriarch of the coming people of Israel, he gave a tithe to God through Melchizedek. In fact, the the Greek word that's used here, the reason it's translated choicest spoils in the NAS is because it's a Greek word that can often be used not just to describe spoils, but the the top, the first fruits, the top 10%. He gave the best of the best to this man. Now that statement is going to be the foundation of these four observations that he'll make to prove to us the point of Melchizedek's greatness over Abraham. Here's the first observation in verse 5. Observation number one, the Levites received tithes based on God's command. The Levites received tithes based on God's command. Look at verse 5. 
And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. Now, with the mention of the sons of Levi, we can see the focus is coming back now. It's going to move away from Abraham and Melchizedek here shortly. And we're going to get back to the real focus of the argument, which is that Christ's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. But he starts with something that's common knowledge. If you've been in Sunday school, if you've read the Old Testament, certainly a Jewish person would understand tithes were paid under the Old Covenant to the Levites. This is commanded by God, Numbers 18.21. To the sons of Levi, behold, I've given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. So a portion of the tithe that was given under the Old Testament really went to support these priests who were giving of their time and their efforts to serve the people. And then other, tithes, other portions of the tithe were used for other things to support the, the tent of meeting and the worship and all those things. But the fact is, the Levitical priests were the only ones that God assigned to receive the tithe under the Old Covenant. But that's not even the main point. The main point is what he says here at the end of verse 5. He says, they've got the commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Now stay with me here. What he's doing is he's putting the Levites and how they receive tithes up against Melchizedek and how he received tithes. And what he's essentially saying is that the Levites, they didn't receive tithes because of some innate superiority within themselves. They were just brethren. They were on the same par. They were all children of Abraham. All of the brothers were, were equal in that sense. They received tithes because they were given this, this role by divine command but not by their own innate superiority over their brothers. That's different than the way Melchizedek receives his tithe. This is observation number two. Melchizedek received tithes based on his superior status. Verses six and seven. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. Now, obviously, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them is a reference to this Gentile man, Melchizedek. He's an outsider. He didn't have the bloodline. He didn't have a divine command that tithes must be given through him. And yet still, the patriarch Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He collected a tenth from Abraham. So why in the world did Abraham pay a tithe to this man if he wasn't in the bloodline and there was no divine command to do that? Well, the answer comes here. Look back at the text. It says not only did he pay it, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So in addition to collecting the tithe, Melchizedek does something else. And this is really what he's getting at. He blesses Abraham. But notice he doesn't call Abraham Abraham. He doesn't call him the patriarch either. He calls him by another description. And bless the one who had the promises. This is another example of showing just how great Abraham really was. Abraham is the one who received the promise from God. This is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. We've read it before, but we'll read it again just to remind ourselves. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. At this time, Abraham is the only one who's received this promise, and it will come to his sons and their sons, ultimately leading all the way to the fulfillment of not only a great nation, but the coming of our Lord, who would be the one, the promised seed through whom the blessing would come to the entire world. But Abraham, the point is, Abraham is the man on the earth, the singular man at this time, that's been given the divine promise, and yet, who blessed who? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's the point. That's the point. He says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. Here's the significance. He's saying, unlike the Levitical priest who 
did their role because it was assigned to them by God, this was done to Melchizedek as a recognition of his greatness, that he was superior to Abraham. And what he's talking about here when he says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater, he's just talking about the biblical pattern. If you think about the rest of Genesis, typically we see it with fathers and sons, but in Genesis 27, 27, Isaac blesses Jacob. In Genesis 49, 28, Jacob blesses his sons. The, the one that is more exalted, has more status or authority, blesses those with lesser authority. The, the inferior receives the blessing from the superior. So the point is, it means that though Abraham was the patriarch, and Abraham did receive the promises of God, it was Abraham who paid a tithe to God through the ministry, the priestly ministry of Melchizedek, and it was Abraham who received the blessing from Melchizedek, which proves that both Abraham and Melchizedek understood that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. That's the point that he's trying to get across to us here. And that leads to this. The Levitical priests, on the one hand, received their tithes from the people who were their equals because God said so. It was God's command. Melchizedek receives the tithe from Abraham because he was superior to him. And here's the, the Christological connection, the connection to Christ. He, he means for us to keep this in the back of our minds. If Christ comes from the order of Melchizedek and his priesthood, what does that mean? He is exalted above the Levitical priesthood, even above Abraham. That's the ultimate point that he intends for us to keep in mind. It leads to a third observation here in verse 8. Observation number 3 Melchizedek's priesthood is superior in permanence. It's superior in permanence. He introduced this idea last week, and he's going to continue talking about it again. Now, he's still giving a, a back and forth between the Levitical priest and Melchizedek. He's going to start by talking again about the Levitical priest. In verse 8, he says, In this case, that is, in the case of the Levitical priest, mortal men receive tithes. Now, in mentioning that these are mortal men, he's talking about the fact that their priesthood was temporary. They were going to die. They, they had an end date. Everyone knew that there had to be this continuation of priests being born in the priestly line because they were all going to die. And so for that to continue, there had to be a continual flow of new priests. But he says, here's the comparison. Verse 8, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, back to Melchizedek, in his case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Now remember, this is building off of what he told us about Melchizedek last week, Hebrews 7, 3. How did he describe Melchizedek? He said he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, as I explained last week, let me just reiterate, the author is not saying that Melchizedek, the historical figure, the historical man, literally had no beginning or no end. He's not saying he was eternal. That's an attribute only assigned to God. Instead, what he's doing, remember the two Old Testament passages that we went through last week? They're still in the background. Genesis 14 on the one hand, the historical account of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4, the prophecy that the Messiah would be a high priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. He's taking those two, the historical account and the prophecy, and putting them together and helping us understand how the historical details support the, the, the prophecy that the Messiah would come through this priestly line. And as we said last week, God inspired Moses as he wrote Genesis to leave out several details about Melchizedek, so it leaves this mystery around this man. So that it appears, at least from the details of the text, because they're missing, that he has no father and no mother and no genealogy, and as if his priesthood just carried on. But we're not intended to think of that literally. Instead, remember, remember what he said last week in verse 3. Think back to this phrase. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning or end of days, uh, beginning of days nor end of life, but, but made like the Son of God. Now notice, notice the order there. It's important. It's not that the Son of God was made like Melchizedek. 
It's that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Now, what, what does that mean? It means the focal point here is about something about Christ, not about something about Melchizedek. What he's saying is these details, this mystery points ahead. We're talking about the Son of God, and he's seeing a similarity. He's looking back and seeing a similarity in the details about Melchizedek. So what was only apparent, what only appeared to be true about Melchizedek would actually be true about the one he pointed to, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why David says this about Christ, not about Melchizedek, but about Christ in Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The truth is, Christ's priesthood is the one that is forever. Christ's priesthood is the one that will remain, and therefore it's entirely superior to the Levitical priesthood. Now let's just take a quick pause, a quick brain break, because this idea of typology and types, this might be new to some of you. You may not have heard this language before. The idea of a type in the Old Testament pointing to something in the New Testament. I just want to help you know I'm not off my rocker here when we're talking about these things. That we see this throughout Scripture. There are other types in Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself says, hey, this thing that happened in the Old Testament, that was about me. Let me show you. John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You remember that odd story in, in Numbers when the, the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness and the people are commanded to look on it and be healed? Jesus says, yeah, that was a type, that was, that was a shadow pointing to me as I would be lifted up and all who had faith in me would be healed, forgiven of their sins. Another example Jesus gives is that of Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 and 40. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, how, how does Jonah point to Jesus? Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says that, that picture of, of Jonah as he was actually swallowed by that fish, he was there for three days and three nights in the same way I'm going to be in the grave and rise on the third day. In fact, Paul gives another type of Christ and actually uses this word type in Romans 5.14. Speaking of Adam, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. In Romans 5, essentially what he's saying is that all who were in Adam uh, received the penalty for sin that Adam earned. Therefore, all who are in Christ by faith receive the blessing of forgiveness through what he earned in his perfect life. But I'm just showing you this to say that there are many ways in which Old Testament truths are just a shadow that point to greater realities and that's what we have here in Melchizedek. So I know that while some of these things are, may appear academic on the surface, they may be heady things, these are important, rich things that God intended to point us to the, the grandeur of our Savior. The greater the type, the greater the one that's represented. And that's what we have here. The truth is, this idea of Christ's priesthood being greater than the Levitical priesthood because it is perpetual. It's eternal without end. This is really, really good news for us. This should have all of our hearts leaping into our throats. Because if you're in Christ this morning, it means you have been justified by his grace through faith, and that means that you will most certainly be brought safely home to glory to be with him. Because he's, he's guaranteed it, not only in his death and resurrection, but he continues to do so as he ministers on your behalf and on my behalf at the right hand of the Father. It's an ongoing ministry of his priesthood. And it will continue on into the rest of eternity. Every moment of every day, Christ's blood will minister before the throne of the Father so that that sacrifice, is, it's eternally there, it eternally speaks so that those who are covered by the blood of Christ have no, no need to fear. 
No reason to lose their assurance because our gracious Savior ministers day and night on our behalf. This one is mine, interceding for us, for our good. And this is why we'll continue to repeat this theme over and over again from many different angles that the assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. Let me ask you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Have you truly come to a place where you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Do you understand that if it depends on you, just as if it depended on me, to stand before the Lord and give a defense as to why we ought to be allowed into heaven, why he ought to forgive or overlook our sins, you understand we would have no defense? What this passage is saying is that we need another to stand in our place. We need another to do, do that defense, to intercede for us, and that's been provided for us in Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and offered that as a sacrifice on the cross and rose from the grave and he stands as the defense of the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the justification of all who are in him so that we don't stand before God and try to come up with some reason why he should allow us into his heaven. There is no reason other than the fact that we are those who by grace have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the reason. And so you see, the, the priesthood of Christ even connects to why you need to come and humble yourself and repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ today. If you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this reality that we're studying would call you to humble yourself and come to him because he is the only answer. It is only his ministry before the Father that will be accepted on our behalf. Now coming back to these observations that the author is making. Let's come back to the fourth observation, the final one that we'll study this morning, and it is this. Melchizedek received tithes from Levi through Abraham. Melchizedek received tithes from Levi through Abraham. This is verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, And so to speak, through Abraham... Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now, we can't quickly glance over those words, and so to speak, because it makes a, a very clarifying point. The author is, is making an argument here by way of deduction. He's not saying literally that, that Levi paid tithes to Abraham. He knows that that didn't literally happen, but he's making a deduction here based on the fact that Abraham paid tithes. And what he's saying is that through Abraham, even Levi, the one who received tithes, the one that under the law received tithes, actually paid tithes himself. Well, how did that happen? He says, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. As we've already established, Abraham is the patriarch of the people of Israel, meaning that it's with him that the bloodline begins. And so you'll remember, Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac, then the father of Jacob. Jacob, then the father of the 12 sons who would be the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons of Jacob was, of course, named Levi, and it's from his bloodline that the Levites would come and serve as priests that we're talking about here. And the point is that because Abraham is the head, the patriarch of the family, it's as if he represents the family as a whole. So when he does something... He does it as the representative of the whole family. So when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, it's as if those who would come from his bloodline, the Levites in this case, also paid tithes to Melchizedek, meaning, of course, that even they are lesser. They're subservient, inferior to the superior status of Melchizedek. If the patriarch of the nation is inferior then those who would come after him in his bloodline are inferior, except for the God-man, who was the God-man Jesus Christ, who would serve as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's the argument, the basic argument of the text. But I, I do want to take our remaining moments and just step back for a moment, because I think it's easy to get lost in the weeds. There's a lot of weeds here, and it's easy to say, you know, this is good. I mean, I, I get it. But what, what prompted the author to write such detail about Melchizedek and all these things? I, I don't really understand. Obviously, 
We, we believe and, and know that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if God thought it necessary to put this much information in the Bible about this topic, it must be of great significance. It must have been very urgent in the mind of the author, but also in the mind of God. So let's step back and ask the question, what effect is all of this supposed to have? What's it, what effect was it supposed to have originally on the original audience? And then what effect is it supposed to have on us? And I think we have to start with the original audience. And so I need you to just take a moment, put on your sanctifi- uh, sanctified imagination, picture yourself as a Jewish Christian receiving this letter. You are a Jew in, in, by blood, by heritage, you have a rich heritage of Judaism, but you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're ecstatic to learn that the Messiah has come, that he's paid for your sins, you're saved by grace, not by works of the law, and this has captivated your heart and your life. But since coming to Christ, you've experienced great trouble and hardship. Many in your family perhaps have despised your decision to follow Christ. Many of them perhaps won't speak to you anymore. Many in the church that you attend and serve in have gone to prison now because of their faith. You've even had some of your personal property seized and taken from you because you profess faith in Christ. And now you're beginning to grow weary and tired. And even though you're still convinced that Jesus is the true Messiah, your eyes are beginning to look back at your former life of Judaism. And you're tempted to say, you know, life was easier then. Things things were so much smoother. And doesn't it seem odd that more Jews aren't coming to Christ? Why are the Gentiles so excited to hear of Christ, but my own countrymen grow violent and angry at the very mention of his name? And this hardship and difficulty quickly leads you into a state of spiritual apathy. There's nothing left in the spiritual tank. You haven't left Christ, you haven't left the faith, but perhaps you've begun to look back at your days in Judaism and started to think, you know, those were the good old days. The days when it was easy and smooth. And the more you look back at the ease of your former life and the hardships of your current situation, you you begin to, without noticing it, downgrade your view of Christ and downgrade your value of Christ and there with it goes your faith. Well, understand it's into that dangerous situation that the author writes this letter to the Hebrews. This is, these are the things he's observing that are happening. And this is one of the reasons that he's laboring so long and hard over and over again about all these details about Abraham and Melchizedek. It's as if he takes this group of lethargic Jewish believers and he says, I want you to look at Christ compared to the Levitical priesthood from this angle. Okay, you see that? Now come and I want you to stand and I want you to look at it here from this angle. Okay, now I want you to stand on your head and I want you to look at it from this angle. And what you're going to see, Christian, is that no matter what way you look at it, Christ is superior. Christ is the jewel of our faith. What are you doing? What are you thinking about going back to the shadow when you have the substance of the shadow right before you in the person of Christ? That's why this is so urgent. That's why this matters. He's saying, do you really want to run back to a temporal priesthood, a temporal priesthood carried out by sinful mortal men in an earthly temple when you have Christ, the very Son of God, the eternal high priest who ministers not in an earthly temple but beyond the veil of heaven in the very presence of the Father? You're telling me you want to trade that for this? It's nonsense. It's foolishness. And so he goes back to it over and over again to drill it into our minds that Christ truly is better. He truly is superior, and he's worthy of our affection, worthy of our faith, and we're to hold on. Hold on. I was reminded that the the consequences of failing to heed the author's warning, unfortunately, are on display today among many of the Jewish people in Israel. I've mentioned it before, but my wife and I, along with a group of others, some of you in this room, went, got to go back to, got to go to Israel in 2019, and 
I'll tell you, it was truly captivating. It was a life-altering experience in many ways to see the places where Christ was and ministered. It was, but also, I found myself, while being captivated by those things, experiencing a deep sense of sadness and grief. And the sadness came from watching the Jewish people who live there in the Promised Land. It was a devastating picture of what happens to a group of people when they reject their Messiah. They have only a shadow of a religion. The soul and the substance is gone. There's no priesthood in operation. In fact, the genealogical records have been lost, so there's no way to even prove that a Levite is a Levite. Not only that, there's, there's no priesthood and there's no temple to worship in. And if there's no temple, it means there's no sacrificial system which affects everything. There's no morning and evening sacrifice. Even their holidays can't truly be celebrated in the way that they're meant to be because there's no sacrificial system. And ultimately, of course, that means there's no sacrifice for sin. And to add insult to injury in the place where the temple should be, there is this monstrosity, an idolatrous temple that's a sacred place of worship for Muslims. So where do devout Jews go today to supposedly get close to Yahweh? Will they go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, or they go down underneath that to the the stones of the foundation of the old temple and they, they worship God there, trying to get as close as they can to where the physical Holy of Holies would have been? And as I witnessed all of this, I couldn't help but become overwhelmed by emotion Because this is what happens when God sends the long-awaited Messiah, the the one that the prophets foretold, the one that was promised to come through the, the seed of the woman and the bloodline of Abraham and of David. And he comes to the people and they say, you know, he's not really what we wanted. He's not really what we expected. We'll wait for another one. Now, I say all of that not to disparage in any way modern-day Jews. I pray for them. Many come to faith and have come to faith and proclaim that faith. And I take courage in things like Romans 9 to 11, that while there is a partial hardening, a, a blinding hardening of heart, that will one day be removed, and many Jews will come to the faith. And we, let, we long for that day. We pray for that day. My point is not to put down modern-day Jews, but to say that's an example of why the author is so intent to say, hey, wake up. Stop going back to the shadow when the substance has arrived. But lest we be too harsh with these Jewish believers, there's also an application for us this morning. Let me just ask you, what is it that you're tempted to value more than the Lord Jesus Christ? What trials tempt you to become disillusioned in your faith? What threat of persecution or loss of reputation causes you to close your mouth in silence instead of speaking the truth of the gospel? What sins of your former life do you crawl back to when you feel like you've been pushed to the breaking point or you just deserve a break from it all? You see, we may not be tempted to run to Judaism when times get tough, but we can all be tempted to momentarily turn our gaze from the glories of Christ to much lesser things. And this passage calls us to fix our eyes and our minds intently on the superiority of Christ. And the reason for that is because the strength and endurance of your faith is directly proportionate to your value and view of Christ. Let me say that again. The strength and endurance of your faith is directly proportionate to your value and view of Christ. If you do not value Christ above all things, then you will sinfully choose pleasure over Christ in the face of temptation. And if you do not view Christ as holy and exalted to the highest place, then you will yield to sin when your circumstances grow dark and difficult. This is why Solomon would say the words we read in the beginning of the message, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you know what wisdom means biblically speaking? Wisdom does not refer simply to knowledge. Wisdom refers to the maturity that comes with that knowledge of living it out. A wise man, a wise woman, is one who not only knows the truth, but through maturity has gained the skill of living that truth out in their daily life. That is wisdom. 
and it comes from the fear of the Lord. That is having a, a healthy reverence for God, a high view of God is the prerequisite for walking in wisdom, for walking in obedience. And so it is, the author says, take a long look again at Christ because the more exalted he is in your mind, the more you will love him, the more you will trust him, the more you will seek to walk in his ways. And that's why all these details about Melchizedek and Abraham matter. The author's using them as a spotlight to say, look again at the glories of Christ. With those things in mind, let me just leave you with three appropriate responses this morning for us as we wrap this up. Number one, we're going to go back to where we were last week with the application I gave because it's still appropriate. Strengthen your faith by meditating on Christ's eternal priesthood. Spend time meditating on these things and notice the way the Lord uses them to promote obedience and holiness in your life. But secondly, reject every temptation to value anything more than Christ. Really, this is the heart of our struggle with sin and temptation. When we give in to sin, in that moment, we have valued something more than Christ, which of course is idolatry. The Christian can never truly abandon Christ, but we can have momentary instances of selfish idolatry in which we place our desires over the commands of Christ. And when we do that, the real issue is we have not honored Christ as holy in that moment. We've not seen him as superior. We've revealed in that moment that our thoughts of Christ are far too low and our thoughts of ourselves are still far too high. And so reject every temptation to value anything more than Christ. Finally, cultivate the fear of the Lord by meditating on Christ. The more we dwell on Christ, the more we should come to not only love him but to fear him. Biblically speaking, to fear the Lord is not a call to be afraid of him, but it is a call to honor and to reverence him, to tremble because of that holiness in as you think of him and picture yourself in his presence, to reverence him. It's to marvel at his holiness. The fear of the Lord motivates vibrancy in our faith. It motivates vibrancy in our obedience. And I want to encourage us to always remember that however high your thoughts of Christ may be, they are never high enough. I pray we have a high view of God, but we will never have a view that's high enough to actually be worthy of him. You ever wonder what it'll be like to see Christ in heaven? Ever wonder what it'll be like to behold his glory with your own eyes? Well, in application of this passage and seeking to meditate on him and to see his holiness and his beauty, I want to finish just by reading a passage that will take us for a moment into the throne room of God and to be reminded again of what it is that we have a perfect high priest who is there on our behalf. Think with me as we close on Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, the scene from heaven. The apostle John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? And to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he'd taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals 
For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is a glimpse of the glory of our Savior. As all of heaven, really all of creation, beholds the glory of the Lamb, the one who is worthy and exalted above all. The call of Hebrews is that we would stand in awe of him. And as we do, recognize that the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that imagery that's given to us there in that passage. Just for a moment to behold your greatness and your grandeur. Truly, you are worthy. Help us never to grow weary in our pursuit of you. Help us to remember that we've never arrived. We always have more to learn and more more areas to be sanctified and to grow. Our thoughts of you can still be expanded and we thank you for expanding our thoughts of you this morning, even in Hebrews. God, help us to love Christ more fervently and because of that to serve him more fervently for he is worthy. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.